Hello, Florida Bar members and Florida registered paralegals. This is a quick reminder from the Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers that you are approved to use the Florida Lawyers Helpline, a completely free and confidential around-the-clock helpline designed to support you in managing the challenges of both your personal and professional life. By dialing 833-FL1-WELL or 833-351-9355, you can connect with mental health professionals who are ready to assist you. Take advantage of up to five complimentary in-person or telehealth counseling sessions annually. And remember, there's no limit to the number of calls you can make. Reach out today. You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel. Produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Jamie Moore. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida lawyers with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So as we all know, the legal profession has been grappling with the issue of lawyer well-being for quite a while now. Unfortunately, too many lawyers are still experiencing chronic stress, burnout, resulting in high rates of substance abuse and depression. And it's essential to acknowledge the importance of lawyer well-being, especially this month is we're recording this in May for uh, well-being in law, and we want to provide some actionable steps to address it. Healthy and happy lawyers provide better legal services to their clients, which improves the public trust in the legal system. So joining us today to discuss the Institute for Wellbeing in Law and their report, The Path to Wellbeing, Practical Recommendations for Positive Change, is Bree Buchanan, Senior Advisor for Krill Strategies. Bree Buchanan was a founding co-chair of the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing and is co-author of its groundbreaking 2017 report, The Path to Wellbeing, Practical Recommendations for Positive Change. From 2020 to 2023, she served as board president and inaugural executive director of the Institute for Wellbeing and Law. Prior to this, Ms. Buchanan served as chair of the ABA Commission on Lawyers Assistant Programs. She is currently a member of the newly formed Lawyer Wellbeing Committee of the International National Bar Association. As director of the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program from 2013 to 2018, she worked with individual lawyers and with legal employers who were seeking resources and support for their staff. Her tenure with that program followed a two-decade legal career, which included positions as a litigator, lobbyist, and law professor. She is now Senior Advisor with Krill Strategies, Inc., providing consultation and training on issues related to lawyer well-being and impairment for major legal employers. Welcome to the show, Bree. Thank you, Christine and Jamie. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We're very happy to have you on, Um, as I said, for this month. um, It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and the beginning of the month is Wellbeing in Law. So before the ABA's National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing released their famous report in 2017 and the 2016 Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation study was released, 
had the mental health epidemic inside the legal profession ever been officially addressed in depth? I think the key word there, um, Christine, is in depth. Mm-hmm. Before those reports came out, the report in that study that Patrick Krill did was published in 2016. Really, I could say the, the people in the legal profession who are paying attention to the well-being of the, the profession's members and the lack thereof, really the people in the lawyer's assistance program um, arena. And so each state has a lawyer's assistance program. Um, but typically it's only, you know, one, two people. <laughs> when I was the director <laughs> at Texas, I was, uh, we had three people to serve 110,000 lawyers in the state of Texas. So wow. you can see when you start looking at some of the statistics, you know, 20% and then 30% of lawyers engaging in risky drinking, um, all of the rates of these behavioral health disorders, you can see clearly that was not enough. So we had people paying attention and they were, we were really just looking at the lawyers, law students and judges who had the worst problems. We were helping those that were just really sort of coming off the rails because of major depression, et cetera. But then all the rest of the profession, we just didn't have the resources to help. So when Patrick's study came out in 2016, you know, we finally had good data. You can't, do things mm-hmm. until you have the data to back it up. And that was the first time we had good, a good study, good statistics. And we really, um, those of us who created that, uh, the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing uh, came together around the fact that we finally have good data. This, we have a window here. And we need to take action while we have the attention of the legal profession. And so that really is what inspired uh, the, the writing of the report and the action that was taken at that time. And I think it really changed everything. I joined the Florida Bar in 2015, and I think by 2017, we had formed the committee, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers. So it changed everything across the country. Such yeah. a, it was really important. I know. And Florida jumped on really quickly. And I would say the Florida Bar really um, stepped out in leadership. So kudos to you all. <laughs> you, you were ahead uh, of almost all of the rest of the pack uh, as a bar association really stepping in and having a robust response to this issue. So kudos to you all. Thank you. Yeah, we're trying. (laughs) (laughs) So um, mental health is an issue for individuals regardless of profession, but impacts lawyers at much higher rates. Did these reports determine the causes? Right, Jamie. The the report that we had uh, coming out, um, or the study that we had coming out in 2016 from Patrick, really didn't look at the causes at that time. We just looked at the conditions of people and the rates of these behavioral health disorders. And so in the early days of the lawyer well-being movement, which we really think that we've created a movement, um, we came together and hypothesized uh, what some of those things are. And um, I can tell you when we go out and we, I'm thinking from wearing my hat from the lawyer's assistance program community at that time and going around the state of Texas and the country talking about these issues, there was real consensus around what some of those causes were. And so a lot of it, it you can put it into a couple of different buckets. Um, and one is the people that are attracted to the law profession. And then there too is the profession itself. So the people that tend to enter 
the legal profession that walk in the doors of law schools have some traits such as perfectionism. And there's a lot of research that ties perfectionism to depression and maladaptive coping mechanisms like drinking too much. Um, so that, that is one um, kind of character trait that people bring. Uh, we tend to be type A, right? Real mm -hmm. driven. Uh, and that is a, can really be a setup for burnout, right? And burnout is a real um, precipitating uh, a cause of these behavioral health disorders as well. So in the bucket around the profession itself, of course, we have these expectations of what a lawyer is to be. And the lawyer is supposed to come in with their suit of armor, right, and representing their client. And they are the warrior in the courtroom um, to, to protect their client or advance a cause. And we fight in what we know. And I was a litigator, and I know the last thing I ever wanted to do was reveal sort of a chink in my armor to the opposing side or to the, uh, you know, who I was working for. I needed to be strong all the time. And what that does is that you have to continually put forward this persona. And over the course of one's career, you know, we're lawyers for 40 years or so, um, there are going to be times when there are some chinks in that armor. That's just life. And what we want to do and what we're still uh, struggling to change is around help-seeking behavior. And some of those early studies looked at that. And what we see is that lawyers, and there was a study by David Jaffe at that time that came out of law students that are incredibly uh, reluctant to ask for help because they have the fear that if they do and somebody finds out, you know, the law students think I'll never get a job, I won't be admitted to the bar, the lawyers say I'll never have another client, and nobody's going to respect me. So those are a couple of the, uh, I'd say, predominant characteristics that, that we were dealing with at, at that time of causes for these, um, these behavioral health disorders. Yeah, and we've we've done uh, back in the day. We did several with Ann Bradford, where you know she talks mm -hmm. about um, you know another attorney that got on the well-being side of it. But it's interesting. We've done ADHD, so um, mm -hmm. lawyers typically will have three times the rate of ADHD than the public. So already like uh, hyperfixation, you know, like they're drawn mm -hmm. to the, like the novelty and the um, kind of like the drama of the law. But mm -hmm. it, then it starts to burn them out. And we've done a mm -hmm. podcast about vicarious trauma. So you arrive with, with your personal traits and you're drawn to the profession. Mm -hmm. Then you take on, like you said, you're, you're the, the warrior to protect your clients. So now you're taking on their problems and you're weighed down by <laughs> uh, secondary trauma. So it's Absolutely. kind of a perfect storm. Well, that too. And then of course, what we all know is just sort of the pressure cooker mm -hmm. that is the legal profession and the expectations of um, sort of endless hours and there's still a lot of expectation out there that you're going to subvert a lot of your um, basic, gosh, I would say human needs <laughs> for connection, for community, for family, uh, for physical activity, for leisure, for rest. All of those things you're expected to set aside while you're um, in, uh, you know, high form as a lawyer. So. Yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough place. And when I used to go out and speak around the country as part of the lawyer's assistance program, one of the first things I talked about is that 
in a lot of ways, it, the legal profession is sort of a um, hard hat area, uh, right? <laughs> in regards to behavioral health, you know, there needs to be a warning label, <laughs> maybe on the back yeah. of, your, of your bar license to, to, to just think about my, what I always sort of preached was, yes, it's tough. Yes, you can do it. And yes, you've got to have a self-care plan from the day you enter into law school um, through the end of your profession, because it is just inherently difficult. And a lot of that's not going to change. I mean, those of us in the well-being movement are real clear. You know, we're not going to take away the stress of practice. Um, in the next decade or more, we're not going to lose the billable hour. Um, we just have to accept some of the realities of that, too. So, Yeah. So the, the path to lawyer well-being report found that around 25% of lawyers are addicted to work, which is obviously detrimental to their quality of life and mental health, but is often valued and encouraged by some firms. How can the legal profession redefine the culture so that lawyers are not expected to work excessively long hours? Mm. Right. And that's a there's a trick, that's a tricky wicket. Um mm -hmm. yeah. if you asked if I went out and spoke to a bar association luncheon and I asked that question, people raise their hand. I'll tell you what people will say, and it's that it's all about um, the billable hour. And um, that's just a piece of it. And one of the things we find is that there, uh, there are a lot of lawyers, too, that are very um, want to be uh, extremely productive. They want that challenge. And so it's just it's not as clear cut as just changing the billable hour. Um, some of it is creating uh, value systems, inculcating values among the leadership that you're going the, around well-being. And, an and base that on an understanding that if your people are thriving, your business is going to thrive. You know, the, the business of law is all about the people doing um, the work. And it's directly tied to that. And we know, for instance, when uh, there's been studies in the past uh, five or so years about if you work to the point of burnout, a lot of those people start looking for an exit. They start looking to leave the door. And one thing we know is the incredible costs that come with attrition. Um, and we just, Patrick just did a study involving um, the California lawyers and the DC lawyers that really showed that, particularly among women, um, too, that the work conflict, um, the low prospects of promotion, things such as that, along with diminished mental health, um, is really driving a lot of women out of the profession. And in fact, that study showed um, that 25% of women who were surveyed at that time were actively contemplating leaving the profession because of a mental health concern. One in four. Wow. Yeah. 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 Like Larry Krieger here is mm -hmm. um, a professor at Florida State University and um, he's done some CLEs for us. But it was interesting because uh, one time we did a town hall and some of his few, uh, his 
previous students had come and they said just Ooh. by being told ahead of time, hey, heads yeah. up, here's a disclaimer, be aware, they mm -hmm. were doing much better. So I feel like that's, you know, the mm. push does have to start um, in law school. But it's, it's interesting because if you just wake up in the middle of it and you don't know what happened to your life. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, right. but so that, and you I, know, go ahead. Oh, I say, I think that we're doing better. Um, around that, there was a real, you can tell there was a real hunger around well-being initiatives among law school, we can say faculty, but certainly administration and the deans and the deans of academic and student affairs. Um, and so there has been a good amount of activity around that since the publication of, in 2017 of the report. Um, so I think that uh, law schools are catching on. There's a push to try and get the... Um, the faculty to include some well-being issues, fact mm -hmm. scenarios within uh, their curriculum. That's sort of the, the goal that we make sure that all law students at some point over their three years are exposed to and learn about what, what the type of profession they're entering, entering into and what they need to be prepared to do to take care of themselves. So I, I think there's good news there. Um, yeah, but, excellent. Um, still have still have a lot of ways to go. I, I can tell you, a lot of the programming um, in law schools is around mindfulness and meditation, and those really powerful. They do yoga. They do a lot of programs to support students who are in you know in extreme stress and around uh, finals. Uh, the hard work in the law schools, like the hard work in the law in law firms, is the billable hour. The hard work in the law schools is trying to get into the classrooms and change some of the dynamics between faculty and students and teaching methods that can be so destructive. Um, and so that definitely is an area where we've got a long way to go. And I wonder, like, just generationally, if if the kids that are students today, as mm -hmm. they move into leadership at firms, if we're going to see more change, you know, as, as if they're bringing that to the firms with them. Absolutely. That will be, yeah. Bingo, bingo, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you, hit, you, hit on it. I, you know, what I talk about is that well-being in law is inevitable because of this generational shift of leadership. Mm -hmm. so if you look at the law student, the people that are coming out of university and going into law school and are in the pipeline to the legal profession, those individuals are of a, a cohort that are very comfortable talking about depression and addiction um, and anxiety. It's, mm -hmm. They just don't have the same level of stigma. So there's that piece, this awareness of it, uh, the dim diminishment of a stigma so we can actually talk about it and address it. There is a high percentages of those folks that have these disorders. I mean, it's really concerning um, just as an, and for me as just an individual to see, I guess, uh, maybe pathology, maybe too rough of a word, but the rates of these things are so high among um, our high school and college students right now. So as these people start to onboard into the profession and move towards leadership, they're going to bring those values uh, and those worldviews around mental health um, into that. And so I tell people, once those folks start moving into positions of leadership, I know uh, that they're going to start making some changes. So we've got, you know, 15 years, 20 years, um, a lot of suffering. 
can go on mm-hmm. in that amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we are doing at the Institute for Wellbeing and Law is to try to push the movement forward as fast as we can. Again, because a lot of people are really suffering. And just a moment on that topic, you know, we came together in 2016 and said, we're gonna write this report, we have this opportunity, and we all felt a fire at our heels um, because every one of us who were working on that were sort of had some job tangential to, to behavioral health and could see how much people were hurting, how many lawyers committed suicide. And so we uh, fanned that flame and got the report done in nine months. And for example, I can tell you the medical profession was working on a a parallel project. Um, And and I met with them again a few years ago and they're still working on definitions. (laughs) Oh no. Report. And and we just blasted through that because um, it's just critical that, that there's a shift. It is. And I think we're, yeah, we're all better for it. So we appreciate you doing that. So like the the reports were depressing, but I think it was the shock that we all needed. Mm. And so you're the perfect person. So you're in the trenches back then, but you have pivoted to now um, looking for actual solutions, which is something we try to always talk about on the podcast. So you currently work for Krill Strategies. And I love this. Your website states that the goal is to, quote, reduce the prevalence and impact of mental health and substance use problems in the legal profession and improve the personal well-being of its members. Very direct. There are you go. <laughs> are you um, in, in that role starting to see change in the legal profession and the groups that you work with? Or is the traditional law firm business model too well-established to overcome widely? Mm-hmm. Are we going to see? So what are you seeing um, directly? Sure. It depends in a lot of ways on the size of the firm. So let me sort of okay. bifurcate my answer here. There, for the solo and the small firms, it's been really difficult for us to find ways other than CLE and education to try and improve their experience and improve their well-being. We've got a long way to go in trying to, to uh, support that group. If you look at the medium to large to mega-sized law firms who have resources um, I can talk about some of the changes we're seeing there. And the biggest thing I would say is the, uh, and it's so gratifying, is we uh, produce this report. It hits such a nerve that so many <laughs> lawyers who are experiencing these problems became well-being advocates. They, you know, left the law practice and hung up a shingle in behavioral health or uh, and got an MSW or et cetera. And so now there is a uh, sizable uh, cohort of people who all they do is work on this issue for law firms, consultants, or they're uh, hired on staff permanently. That's a huge piece because when you have somebody in your office whose day-to-day job is to think about the well-being of the people there, that's where you really have a shift. So that's one thing that's changed. Um, I don't, I can't tell you the percentage of firms that have a well-being director within either the HR department or uh, professional development, but it's growing and it's, um, and it's significant. They have their own groups where they get together to, to discuss it, an, their own association where they're building um, knowledge and expertise around this. So that's great. 
um, a, no small number of firms we're seeing are starting to create committees to address this. So not just a person, but also a well-being committee um, to look at some of the activities usually that they're that they're doing. So so the low-hanging fruit can be the you know the yoga. Um, sometimes really helpful can be an on-site therapist, et cetera. Um, there, that's kind of the easy stuff. Um, at the Institute, we're really, we say, yes, help the individual lawyer, but what we really have to do is change the system. Right. So now we're moving to a very, more of a sort of a, an elite <laughs> collection of law firms who are looking at what can they do internally and systemically to change, and they're, they're leading the way, absolutely. Um, but a lot of the stuff then becomes around changing policies and practices with an eye to what can we do to improve the well-being of uh, people here. So, for example, one thing that is just found, first, create a well-being committee uh, so you have people looking at this. Another foundational piece is making sure um, that your firm has a, uh, has a protocol, has procedures, for what somebody should do if they do develop a behavioral health issue. So for example, if somebody has severe depression and are really struggling and feeling like they cannot live up to their obligations, what does that person do? Who do they should be able to, they should know who they're supposed to go talk to, what will happen uh, if they take a leave, uh, how the firm will support them, what the process is for them to be reintegrated into the firm, you know, providing this uh, transparency so that people can feel like they can go away, get the help they need and come back. And so that is, you know, it's just um, policies. <laughs> it's just another uh, mm -hmm. sort of put into the policy handbook of the firm. But that's something that can really make a difference. And very few firms have that. The ABA has a, well ABA has a well-being pledge. For law firms, which has, I think, 220 firms who have signed, and every year they have to report on what they've done. And a piece of what they, one of those pledges, one of the tenets of the pledge is to develop policies and protocols for helping people with a behavioral health disorder, disorder and we're finding very few do. So in some way, I see that as kind of low-hanging fruit. A lot of firms have not taken uh, advantage of that. And then the really tough stuff is looking at you know the the billable hours expectations, providing real transparency around that, building in opportunities to look at the well-being of people in the firm on a regular basis. For example, include that in annual and semi-annual reviews with the employee. Make that a topic of conversation, not to be punitive, but to say how are you doing and how can we at our firm support you in you know your well-being journey here. So still a lot to do. Yeah. And I like your point that if, if it's a transparent policy that a firm has put into place and something happens, you know, it's, it's just like trying to pull yourself together during grief or any kind of incident. Mm. If, if there's a plan in place, it works better. When I entered the legal profession back in 2001 and surveyed different uh, firms, nobody even had a maternity policy. They just right. they would just do it on the fly because they didn't want to deal with it. Mm. And, and yeah. it was a huge disservice to someone who's trying to map out their career and their life. So right. um, you're right. A policy should just be in place. This happens. This is how the firm handles it. And yeah. Nobody and has to. Yeah. Yeah, I think and I think, and I see that that they have the the family leave policies, and so we're sort of mm -hmm. riding on the tails of that. 
know, I talked to firms about, you know, you were able to stop and draft this policy for family leave. You did it. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> right. Now let's try this one. <laughs> let's move right, on right. to this as well. Um, right, right. Yeah, it's sort of the same thing, providing that transparency and letting people know what uh, they what to expect. And that really makes mm-hmm. a difference. And it also says we're not afraid at the firm to talk about this. Right. So you touched on this a little bit, but I want to go right to the touchy part of this mm. with, with <laughs> law firms. So okay. in uh, Patrick Krill's, um, pre- uh, his publication from June of 22 is entitled People, Professionals, and Profit Centers, mm-hmm. The Connection Between Lawyer Wellbeing and Employer Values. This okay. is huge. And so right at the jump, he quotes Patrick <laughs> Schillitz, money is the root of virtually everything that lawyers don't like about their profession. The long hours, the com- commercialization, the tremendous pressure to attract and retain clients, the fiercely competitive marketplace, the lack of uh, collegiality and loyalty Mm -hmm. among partners, the poor public image, and the lack of civility. Um, Almost every one of these problems would be eliminated or at least substantially reduced if lawyers were simply willing to make less money. And I love that. (laughs) Yes. I I read that when Patrick published this, he sent me a draft and I said, Wow, that's brave. <laughs> because he really is calling it for what it is. Yeah. Uh, he's, he really is speaking the truth. And you don't, um, there's very few people that are willing to step out in, very, in a very public manner such as this, this report, and say those things. Mm-hmm. And and you're talk you talked about it. So it's the big firms that can have these resources because you know they'll bring in uh, yoga or chair massage mm-hmm. or they have a gym yeah. on site or they have counselors. All those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Some are serious about it and some are just doing it to pay lip service to it. So mm-hmm. Patrick later states in in that presentation or that publication. Uh, quote, while the financial performance of law firms has risen, growing empirical evidence suggests the mental well-being of uh, members of the legal profession has fallen. So if you are a well-intentioned firm, what are you doing to balance the need to generate revenue? I mean, we know that that's the, you know, that's why you have a business right. with the concern for employee well-being. So how do you, you, you talked about a little bit of it, but like, how are you yeah. really tying those things together so that, um, that the firm remembers that these are human beings that they, you know, <laughs> and we break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we wrote the report, we knew that we were making a big ask. We were asking the profession to change substantially. And so we tried to make a, a really good case of why um, that should occur. And one of those uh, arguments was around the business case for well-being. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of research and studies for just across all professions, not specifically drilling down for legal, around the costs that what depression costs a business uh, when people are uh, chronically underperforming because they're just not well. Um, Then you have people that may be on the very far end and lawyers are really good at hiding these things so they can get get to the point where they're really doing very poorly um, and not doing right by their clients. So you have all of the the discipline, et cetera, that, that can come in place too. So I kind of, I want to go back to the initial report. We were talking about the path to lawyer well-being report. Um, In the report, it talks about a well-being advocate. And I just wanted you to kind of touch on what the role of a well-being advocate would look like inside of the firm and 
how is it different for a big firm versus, let's say, a three-person firm? Because we do have, I mean, a good portion of our members that are are, are small firms. So we we wanted to kind of touch on that. Well, in regards to a well-being advocate in a firm, uh, particularly a larger firm, one of the things that we think is really important is where is that p- person positioned within the hierarchy. So we would want that that the well-being advocate, whoever it is, to be um, either in a position or tied to someone with a position that can actually bring about change, that can do things like put uh, build a budget around well-being efforts, et cetera, and not picking somebody um, who does not have the power to do that. That's where it starts to look a little bit like um, the, the window dressing. So I think a well-being advocate in a big firm um, is going to be looking at what I see, many do, is one thing is creating ongoing programming to provide education to the members of the firm around well different well-being topics. So there's the education piece. Then maybe a, a part of their job is to look at what resources we have available for our firm. So it's not uncommon to talk to a firm and say, I'll ask, well, what if somebody is major, has a major depression? What do you tell them? They come and say, I'm so depressed, I can't get out of bed. What do you say? What's the policy? And most often it's, well, that's a, there's a pause, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then it's, you know, we tell them to contact the EAP. Right. And that is not a viable solution. And so I'll ask, well, have you ever called the EAP, uh, you know, to, to see what it would take? So a piece of that, a res- you know, a responsible part of that uh, well-being advocate is to make sure not just that the resources are online, but they are quality and ones that people can use. So if you tell a lawyer, go call the EAP, and the EAP gives them a list of 25 uh, therapists that they then have to call and find out if they're taking new patients, that's not help, right? right. That's, that really isn't help. Um, and then the other piece is having that advocate be uh, perhaps they're supporting a well-being um, committee um, and should hopefully, ideally, if they're connected to a person with power and authority, can work with them and look around what are some specific uh, things that are maybe driving well-being at our firm. You know, we know, for example, being on call 24-7, 365 really diminishes well-being. So how does our firm operate around that? You know, do we tell our associates uh, when we send them a, uh, a work project, do we tell them, you know what, I don't need this until next week, so you don't need to spend your whole weekend on this? A lot of times they don't. Everything is we need it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, some considerations around things such as that. So, okay, and I, absolutely. I want to jump in right now because people at small firms may not know what an EAP is. That's an employee oh. or employee assistance program. Um, and so what the Florida Bar did to fill that gap is we have um, – a third party who handles this for us. And so we it's a 24-7 completely confidential helpline for mm. our Florida Bar members and our Florida registered paralegals. So they can call anytime, day or night, talk to a counselor over the phone and be referred for five free therapy yeah. sessions, individual therapy sessions per calendar year. That's um, beautiful. And, yeah. And so, and I know other um, state bars have done this, but I think that so many of our members are still completely unaware that that's out there. So we right. are, the bar is, is stepped in to provide that EAP 
um, yeah. and a little even more for her. So. And the issue with that, you've got, that's a great resource and service, but then there's the utilization. How do you get people to use it and, and be aware of it too? Exactly. Yes. We were finding that. Mm-hmm. So Brie, it's common for someone who is struggling with mental health issues like depression or substance abuse to not recognize they need assistance. While it may be obvious to friends or coworkers, what are some of the warning signs and symptoms? I tell people that um, it, you know, we, as lawyers, we think we have to know everything. We have to be experts. And so there's a lot of reticence just about uh, making a, you know, just an internal determination, perhaps, that somebody is really in having a behavioral health issue. Um, I hear lawyers say, you know, I didn't go to law school for this. I'm not trained in this. I can't do right. a formal assessment. I'm not a psychiatrist. Who am I? You know, those sort of sort of things. And I say, set all of that aside. You don't need to be a professional, a mental health professional to assess that a person you know, you work with is in distress you know, this is part of that human being thing. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we can t- read other people. Um, we can see that. And so I, I ask people to just um, follow your instincts and look for certain things like that really, a lot of it boils down to, is there a significant change in behavior in some way? Are they eating less or eating a lot more? Are they, you know, are they drinking significantly more? Or is this a person who is always, when they've come into the offices, you know, look really sharp and now they come in and they look like they're, you know, they're in a disarray. A lot of it starts to happen around work product. So uh, things are late, things are missed. Um, The real concerns start coming in, and this is very common with somebody who's in distress, is the communication with a client drops uh, or ends. And so you, they become fearful of answering the phone or responding to emails. So there, there really is, um, these, these changes in changes underlying that in behavior that can be indicative that there may be a problem and you don't need to know or be able to, um, to evaluate, um, what exactly that problem may be. Somebody who has maybe an alcohol use disorder and somebody who has major depression, what you see may be very similar. But that's not the point. The point is we want that person to be feel like they can get help uh, for whatever that problem might be. And so um, we in the lawyer well-being community, you know, Patrick Krill, et cetera, we really encourage people to say something, you know, see something, say something. And the and it's, it's almost formulaic. Um, if you are really worried about something, you know, I, I can tell you sort of how the conversation goes. Um, establish a connection and trust. You know, Joe, you and I have been practicing law in this county for 30 years together, and I think you're a great lawyer. Next, though, state the facts about what your concern is. You know, Joe, I'm really worried about you because it seems like you've changed. Um, you know, I saw that, uh, you know, you don't respond to my emails or I saw you come to court the other day and had, we're really struggling and that's just not like you, you know, give them the facts. You don't tell them, Joe, I think you're an alcoholic. <laughs> that right, does not right. work. <laughs> give them the facts, just the facts that what you're observing and then say, this is the magic here. What's going on? How can I help you? How are you? And try to get the person who's in distress to speak. Many times that person has never gotten that level of distress out of their head. 
or spoken to another person, person about it. So you're allowing the opportunity to, to get that out in the air. And once people start to speak about the problem and can put words to what they're experiencing, you are uh, another step closer for them in being in a point where they can start to access resources, to contact a therapist, et cetera. Um, and also the idea that if somebody, if I can tell, I'm a recovering alcoholic uh, myself uh, and have been uh, sober for 14 years, but if somebody, if you're an active alcoholic and somebody comes up and says, I've noticed that you're having problems, that is um, a warning signal to you that you're, disease has moved to the point where it's become noticeable to the outside world and can be a real motivator also to start moving towards getting help. So we really want people to have, just have these basic human conversations of expressing care and support. And a lot of times, the first time you go around, you'll say, how are you doing? And they'll say, I'm fine. Well, okay, I hear you say you're fine, but I'm still worried about you. And I'm going to check on you. I'm going to come talk to you. Let's talk next week. Let's go to coffee. Let's go to lunch next week. And be a, a, a support person for the individual who may be in distress. And so that's, that is the response that is considered most appropriate and most effective uh, in getting people towards resources. And so it would be great if we could train every law student and every lawyer on how to do that. And there is a program called Mental Health, um, what is it called? First Aid. First Aid, there you go. I knew you would know it. <laughs> mental Health First Aid that teaches people, and now there are those courses, Mental Health First Aid for lawyers, teaching them how to do just that. We are huge advocates of that. We have, we have um, obviously, if you're going to go get certified as a mental health first aid responder, you have to do, it's an eight hour course. We've offered right. that at the bar, but you hit on some of the really important things to make that be concerned, you know, make a connection. Those are the important things. It's so awkward. And, um, mm -hmm. and so just giving somebody a couple of lines like that is really helpful. We also have the uh, abbreviated version of um, the mental health helpline and the, um, therapy sessions on business cards. If wow. you come up to the legal fuel booth um, at annual convention, we will give you a stack of them. Keep a few mm -hmm. in your wallet. I always have them on me because it's it's comforting to have something to place in their hands so that they'll mm -hmm. remember it because as mm -hmm. soon as you say something to them, they may be on the defensive, but if you can leave them with that, that resource right. in their hands, I think it's really helpful. Brilliant. So. Yeah. Very good. In the report, the definition of well-being encompasses several areas such as occupational pursuits, emotional health, and physical health. And we've talked about what firms can do, but what are some steps individual lawyers can take to implement well-being in their daily lives? Yeah. So I lecture particularly law students about the fact, you know, they're stepping into this profession 40, 50 years. You have to develop a self-care plan from the very beginning, and that is going to look different for different people. So, uh, you know, I encourage folks to think about, and this is, let's say I'm talking to law students. I'll say, think about, remember back when you were in college and high school and you did things for fun? Um, <laughs> you know, what, what do you enjoy? What makes your heart sing? What, uh, you know, what brings you joy? And that's going to differ for different people. But for folks to think about that and, and understand that, engaging in those activities, whatever that activity may be for them, is really building up their reserve and their resilience 
so that they are in a better position to just take the inevitable knocks and hits that life and the legal profession are going to bring to you. Um, so that that's one piece. You know, think about activities and things that have brought you joy. Um, you know, other things I encourage people to do, uh, particularly, and I speak to this because it's my own personal experience, for those folks who come to law school and enter the profession who already have experienced depression and or anxiety or a substance use disorder. Um, and that was definitely my experience um, that I tell those folks, you absolutely can practice law and you can be a great lawyer. You also need to be aware that you really have to come into the profession, this hard hat area with a plan for self-care. Maybe if you, um, have seen a therapist in the past that you have you engage and start a, a relationship with one again, or you know who you're going to call if you need it, um, and just be really self-aware of asking yourself, for me, and I'll do this in speeches, I'll say, think about what are your signs for when you get overloaded? You know, when you're starting to hit the wall, when you're taking more stress than you can, what, how does that manifest in you? And be tracking that. If you start to see those behaviors, thoughts, experiences in yourself, you've got to look at that as a trigger uh, for you to up your well-being game and whatever that may mean. So, you know, there's there's exercise, there is experience in joy and beauty and great, beautiful music and um, nature, etc. You know, uh, yesterday, this is Wellbeing Week in Law. Uh, the, the week that we're recording this, and yesterday was the spiritual well-being um, day, and that was a, really about um, developing meaning. Do you have meaning in your life? Are you connected to something greater than yourself? So all of these things are powerful and important, and they're also very personal and are going to differ from individual to individual. So I encourage people, be aware, be thinking about this, have your game plan and get ready and have a great life as a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, those are important questions for everyone to think about and be give yourself a little um, yeah, check your engine warning light um, before right. it becomes exactly. out of control. Okay, yeah. last question. So here's the Path to Wellbeing report discusses all the negative effects of a chronic work-life conflict. Um, here's my new pet project. So I want to get you, I want you to okay. weigh in on it because sure. we talk about billable hours, stress, not getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. um, the results of a successful large UK study on implementing a four-day work week were recently published. I think this is genius. I think this may be the last key to having true work-life balance. Um, they found that employers were happier, more productive. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of any law firms that are trying this as a way to promote better work-life balance? And what's your take on that on a four-day work week? I think that that would be fabulous. Um, I have, I think I've heard of one firm that was experimenting with that. Um, when you look at the fact that you have, I think it was it five generations in the workplace, ah. um, it is, I think it's, uh, the, the realistically, it's going to be difficult to get some of those older generations to being willing to make that change. You've, it's the rampant, the idea that, you know, I did it, this is what I went through you're going to do it too. It's still very much out there. So I, that, that um, would be something to, to overcome. So you're going to have to be able to show like, what's the business case for this? Right. We do this. How are we going to reduce attrition? How are we going to reduce turnover and burnout? Well, this could be an excellent way 
Um, and the idea, you know, education, that doesn't mean people work less. They just work in a compact, more compacted time frame. Um, I think it would be fabulous. I think it would make a real difference um, in people's lives. And, you know, not just lawyers, but also the professional staff that are essential to practice. That would make a huge difference as well. Um, the pandemic and the uh, people learning that they can work from home mm -hmm. uh, for many was a real lifesaver in regards to the levels of stress. Um, they can get the work done. They can be working on a brief and also running the laundry. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and that has really helped with work-life balance. And so those firms that are willing to face uh, that change in the culture, um, you know, are kind of ahead of the game. And perhaps some of those would be the ones willing to be, in a way, brave enough to mm -hmm. go against the grain and try that. Because you know, the legal profession, oh, my gosh, is just... Um, it's stubborn. We don't change quickly and it's all mm -hmm. incremental. Yeah. And I think that the firms that experimented with working remotely and like maybe some of the partners didn't like that. We want to be back in the office. So one more thing to consider. So um, I, I'm just putting it out there to yeah, the law firms. That are putting listening. it out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Bree Buchanan, for joining us today. Yeah, it's been a delight. Bree, if our listeners have questions, how can they find you and some of the resources that we discussed today? Sure. Well, lawyerwellbeing.net is the website for the Institute for Wellbeing and Law. And there are a lot of resources there. Um, right now, as I said, is Wellbeing Week in Law. And so if you click on the button there, there's all kinds of uh, resources for personal well-being, as well as some ideas around advocacy. So I would uh, encourage people to check that out. If you'd like to, to ask me questions, um, a, you can reach me. I'm going to give you my private email because it's the one I check the most. Uh, Bree, B-R-E-E, -E, 1964. Now you know how old I am at <laughs> att.net. So Bree, 1964 at att.net. If anybody has questions about this, I'm happy to, to address it. Thank you. That's yeah. very generous yeah. of you. So if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbrey. And I'm Jamie Moore. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.